0: Hi, we here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's word. So, thank you Peter for the the privilege of being able to share the word with you this morning. always oh, is a great privilege the word of god is a is a is a treasure to us and uh, it's a a blessing to be able just to to share some insights that one gets on <clears throat> on the the wonder of god's word and uh, i want to just share a little this morning i want to start actually this morning by by starting at the end i want to go to the end and uh, the end I'm talking about is the end, of the end of the Bible. The end of the Bible, I'm sure you know, is the book of Revelation. Please remember that it is the book of Revelation, not Revelations, as so many people speak of it. It's actually, even more correctly, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, the sad thing is, I think, that it's probably possibly the the least read book in the Bible. Very few people have read through the book of Revelation. I won't ask you to put your hands up. (laughs) This isn't too embarrassing. I'm just trying to encourage you this morning. And uh, the book of Revelation, just to give you a little bit of background, was written about 60 years after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it's right... The Church has been on the go for a couple of decades when this book is written, or recorded is perhaps the better word to use, and uh, funnily enough it was also the last book that was ever recognized by the Church Fathers as being inspired. The very last book to form part of what we know as the canon of New Testament scripture. And uh, the amazing thing about Revelation, too, is that, that it was never a, a book that featured much in the Reformation ages. And, in fact, Martin Luther uh, even declared that Revelation, he, he didn't think, should be in the Bible, sure. never place in Scripture. And then John Calvin, who has shaped the, the theology of so many, and was a great theologian and a great Bible commentator, he wrote commentaries on every single book in the, New, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, except the book of Revelation. So we can see that it's been a book that was kind of ignored, and it's not often preached. And when I used to preach regularly, I've got to confess, I never preached from Revelation in all the years that I had opportunity to do so. And I think the reason for that was I really didn't actually know what it was all about. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and I uh, never got around to the, to the time or finding the time to really get into that book. Things have changed. I've had that opportunity now. Not that that makes me, in any way, an expert, but I've really just come to love this book, this wonderful revelation from Jesus. And uh, I want to share a little bit about that with you later. But, uh, you know, so many people just think it's such a complex book. And the people that do focus on it usually do so because they speculate about things They find all sorts of hidden meanings. There's all sorts of fanciful predictions that come out of you know, Revelation. Um, And what we've just all forgotten is that Revelation was written for ordinary people. You don't have to be some kind of wizard to understand this thing. It was written to ordinary people. That's people like you and me. Ordinary people not theologians or great academics. And the the proof of that is that it begins, actually, with seven letters that were written to churches, like this church. Seven churches in seven locations in the the Roman province of Asia, which today is Turkey, part of Turkey. Turkey and they were written for ordinary people and for a practical purpose God is so practical (laughs) He doesn't come with airy-fairy schemes God is very practical and so what I I did once is I wrote down seeing the figure or the number seven is you know such a significant number to so many people and certainly features a lot in the book of Revelation. I, I just wrote down seven uh, reasons why I believe it's, it's very beneficial to study the, the, the Revelation. I not read, study. It's a difference. And I, I tell you, it will not be time that you will regret. So I'm just going to give you this. I'm going to read it to you. Before I pour water all over it <laughs> so that uh, you can just listen to what I have to say here on this thing. First thing I, I want to say when you come to study Revelation and we are blessed to be able to do this is make sure you put on your grace glasses. Yeah, that's good. Okay? And, and it's so vital because most commentaries of Revelation are written from a non-grace perspective. If you find one that's written from a pure grace perspective you're very fortunate but it's also a good thing because then it makes you think about what really is being said so let me give you those quick seven reasons got to move fast here beat the power the first one is that the revelation is from jesus christ that's where it's from the the, the, the book of Revelation starts by saying this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants. So He had us in mind. uh, We are the servants. And He, that's talking of Jesus, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. So John didn't write Revelation he recorded what Jesus gave him. So quite a difference that. Uh, and that's an important point to remember. So this was written to John as the servant of Jesus. And of course the John that we're speaking of is the, is the one who wrote those wonderful letters. Uh, one of the first chosen disciples of Jesus, and he saw Jesus. This was about 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. John saw him. That's an amazing achievement. You think that there is a man who actually knew Jesus in the flesh, but then he also met him as he is now, in his exalted position and state. That's amazing. What an achievement. So John uh, records, uh, John's record confirms what we read in in the book of Hebrews, that in Hebrews 1, chapter 3, it says that, that Jesus, having purged or paid the price for our sin, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So here we are encountering Jesus in his ministry now. Not his ministry before the cross, his ministry after the cross. And what we find is that we have this wonderful assurance that he still cares for and watches over the church, his bride. You and me. He's watching over his church to the very end of the age. You'll never be out of his sight. Never ever, for a moment, will you not be on his heart. The second thing about this is that we are seeing in the revelation of Jesus, the reigning, risen Christ. And the visions that John describes have got their origins in Jesus. Because this is a book that's all about him. He's the hero of the book. He's the central figure he is amongst the candlesticks which is the description we find in the first chapter of Revelation of the church. The church describes candlesticks and uh, he's in the midst of them. And the, it goes on to say that in his right hand he holds the seven stars which are the leaders of the churches. Wonderful to know that leaders are never out of his grip. Neither are we. We are secure in His grip. And He's able to take the scroll that is open, the scroll of history. The only person who is able to do that is Jesus. And He's the one who is the only one who rules over the nations. Revelations is saturated with Jesus. His titles or allusions to Him appear 49 times in chapter 1, 39 times in chapter 2, and 49 times in chapter 3. So just in those three chapters alone, you just read Jesus. You see, you encounter Jesus. He's the Creator. He's the Eternal One. He's the Almighty. He's the God of Heaven. He's He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Root of David. He's the Lamb. He's thus the sacrificial Lamb and the conquering Lamb. He's the bright and morning star. He's the holy one, the King of David, the, the the key of David, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Nineteen descriptive names of Jesus are found in the Book of Revelation. And the third point is that it's a com- it, it is a book that is commended to our study, not to our reading, to our study. Revelation alone is the only book in the Bible which contains a promise of special blessing upon all who read it and hear it and take it to heart what is written in it. You want a special blessing? Get into the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22 verse 7, the words of Jesus himself says, I'm coming soon, or I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Keeps those words. Keeps the holding on to the truth of what is declared. And Revelation 22 also adds a warning against corrupting the prophecy of the book of Revelation. Or taking away from it, or adding something to it. Very impertinent. Number four is that the revelation is really the pinnacle or the capstone of divine revelation. The revelation completes and crowns the whole canon of scripture. The strands of all scripture, Old Testament and new, all the books of the Bible come together in this triumphant finale. Can you imagine if the Bible ended with the book of Jude? <laughs> Just says, so, so now what? <laughs> but here God draws all the strands of history together in one and we begin to see the final big p- picture. It's a triumphant finale. There's so much of the Old Testament that's found in, in Revelation. About 400 quotations out of the Old Testament. Countless allusions to the to the Old Testament. Altogether about five hundred uh, in total. Most of them are from the books of Exodus and Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiah, Ezekiel rather, uh, Daniel and Zechariah. You'll find reference there to Jerusalem and to Babylon. You find Reference even to people like Balaam and Jezebel. All of these are significant in the Revelation. And then the fifth point is it provides warnings and promises to the church through the ages of conflict that will happen until final victory is achieved. We've alluded to that already. We we live secure but we don't live free of strife persecution, etc. Revelation is entirely prophetic. It's a prophetic message for the church. The church is the recipient here. And so, of course, there are very many differing uh, interpretations of the prophecies of Revelation. Uh, But that's for a different occasion. There's so much to that. And then number six, I think it sets out the true purpose of history. You know, someone has said that history is his story. And uh, this is a history of the future. Written at that time, it was writing of the future. God in history, all of life, moving towards this consummation of the great goal, the fulfillment of God's will for men for mankind, for you, for me. And the ultimate triumph of righteousness, over evil, overcome forever. And He made us, He loves us, He stays with us through everything, through all, and we are gathered to Him. There's wonderful declarations of worship in Revelation, especially in Revelation chapter four, verse eleven. Onwards. And so the whole climax of the age old conflict between Christ and Satan is played out in different scenes in these revelations. There's the woman and the versus the dragon, there's the lamb and the beast, there's Jerusalem and Babylon. There are two groups of people, those that are sealed of God and those who carry a mark of another another kind. And at the end there is a double harvest. There's the harvest of the righteousness of the grain of the kingdom and there's the harvest of the grapes of destruction. So, Revelation really completes and rounds off the story of the world and the church of God's people. And of course it finishes with a wedding. Isn't that wonderful? All things are wedding. In the beginning there was only God and now at the end there is only God. How wonderful. The Alpha and Omega the first and the last. And so the Revelation in the the seventh point which is why I I suggest you you get into it is it gives us absolute assurance of the final victory of the church because it's his victory. It's our victory too. And uh, when I was engrossed in Revelation when he used to ask me what are you learning from this? So I could say I was still processing a lot. I just said, "Well, one thing I know is we win." (laughs) (laughs) So there's definitely there are times of trouble and despair and danger. Even now, as we sit here, who knows in other parts of the world what believers like us are going through, what pressures they face? Maybe we who knows what lies ahead? None of us do. But throughout the ages, the church has been under pressure from all sorts of quarters. But the church draws comfort and the church draws encouragement from what they hear and see, God, as they consider how God has upheld us through all of this. He has been faithful and true. He is our God and our protector. He's always, in every age, been that way. And he remains forever to the end. He still walks amongst the candlesticks. He still holds the stars in his right hand. He's still the Lion of Judah. He's still the slain and conquering Lamb. He's still the overcomer and the conqueror, and we reign with him. Hallelujah he will be our God and we will be his sons and so the final words of Jesus remain our sure promise yes he says I am coming quickly I'm coming soon so what a wonderful way to bring recorded scripture to a close with the revelation from Jesus himself the living word concludes the written word. And of course it was a great encouragement to believers of the first century particularly, when the church was beginning to face (coughs) serious opposition and persecution and and inroads from all all quarters. It was a great encouragement to to those believers as they faced tribulations and hardships of all kinds and, and even death regularly. And it's been a great source of comfort and encouragement to believers throughout the course of history. I think when you look back you'll see that to be the case throughout the course of history believers have really held on to the truth that Jesus speaks through the pages of Revelation. A firm and sure assurance that we can never, we will never, ever be alone. Wonderful words we sang this morning. Those same kind of words, never alone. And it's just wonderful to know that you are firmly in His group. He'll never let you go. Never let you go. So, Revelation is really just a call to us as believers to endure hardships to endure troubles, suffer pain and discomforts and above all to remain faithful, that is faithful, full of faith we can trust and believe Jesus because of who He is and how much He cares for us and so As we uh, as we can move on, maybe from the first chapter of Revelation uh, to the seven letters that were written by Jesus, each of them written to a, a local community of believers in seven different little cities or towns, very close to one another, and they start off
1: a letter written to the church in Ephesus,
0: as one to Smyrna. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You can look up any map of the back of your Bible if you have the book of maps in your Bible and you'll see how those cities were all located in almost a horseshoe shape. And they were communities, obviously, that John, uh, who we've spoken about, because John actually went and moved to Ephesus in his later years. Even after his returned from exile on the island of Patmos, he went back to Ephesus. And that's probably where he was. He died eventually. So, these churches, as we've mentioned, they were facing all sorts of challenges. uh, Challenges that the church still faces today. Challenges. Is this a new one? <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Is that better? Yeah, so is this thing working? <laughs> I <can go> back. <laughs> Oh. that is the quickest. Quickest loan share we've had eh? <laughs> God wants you, he is. Yeah, so they faced challenges that we are facing today. That's why these letters are not were not just written to those churches individually. They were written, those letters were to be read, as was the custom in those days, to be circulated and read to all the churches. So the church in Ephesus got a letter, but people in Smyrna would also be read that letter. And uh, that's how it used to work in those days. The, the, the leader of the church, would, the church would assemble and he would read the letter to the church as they sat there, like we're doing now. And they obviously would listen and discuss and talk about what is being said. And that's why at the end of each of these letters in, in Revelation chapter 2, where it starts, you will see at the end of every letter to every church, the word or the, the, the sentence which says, He that, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So the intention is that we should hear what is being said to every church, because it applies equally to all of us. Okay, so let's look uh, just for ease today to the church in Ephesus. I think that's probably the church we're almost familiar with from those times. Yeah. The, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, at that stage was a, was a strategic city, and that's why Paul took some time to establish a church there I think it's an interesting point that we need never to forget that we need to be strategic in our the way in which we plant our churches don't just haphazardly go plant somewhere look for the strategic places to do that and uh, cities are definitely the strategic places of this century they were, even in those times. So it was a, a very busy city, lots of travelers, lots of trading going on there. <clears throat> and of course also it was a, a, a center for pilgrimage because that was where the great temple of um, the, the goddess Artemis was located. So you had a lot of people coming into Ephesus all the time. And Paul saw the opportunities that... Uh, that presented for the gospel and it became ultimately as you know a base church for Paul. From out of Ephesus a lot of things happened and uh, he first visited Ephesus when he was on his way from uh, Corinth to Caesarea and then later on he came for a second visit and then he stayed there for about two years. The ministry of the gospel there was was profound and uh, a profound impact on the church and you can read all of that through from Acts chapter 18 through to Acts chapter 20 verse 1 tells you a lot about what went on in Ephesus and the, the significance of the gospel's impact there. And then of course some years later John, the apostle of love, arrived in Ephesus as well and uh, it's interesting that the name Ephesus actually means desired one, "loved," the one who is loved. So here we have a, Ephesus as a model church. It's got foundations laid by the Apostle of Grace, and it's had a lot of input from the Apostle of Love. I mean, what more could you ask for as a church? And they had already received one letter, Remember? Paul wrote, to the, yeah. wrote the letter to the Ephesians. He wrote that letter in about 30 or 40 years before um, when he was in Rome. And that letter was addressed to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Now they are about to receive another letter. This letter doesn't come from Rome. This letter comes from heaven. That's amazing. This letter is from Jesus, the risen and exalted Jesus. And it's addressed to the angel of the church at Ephesus. That word angel is the Greek word angelos, and most people agree that that word means, it usually means a messenger, but it also can be the leader of the church. So here we have angelos peter. <laughs> the letter would come to peter and uh, the letter wasn't just for him it was addressed to him as the leader and i think that's incredible that god shows respect for the leadership <laughs> that's something we need to bear in mind always and so he, he sends a letter to the leader and the leader then as i said reads the letter to the people. So that's how it would have worked. And uh, you can read that letter in Revelation chapter 2 from verses 1 through to 7. Seven verses is all the letter contains. And we're not going to look into all of it this morning. And just one aspect in particular I want to touch on. and again, I, I just want to say before we do, before I share anything, is that it's so important when you read these letters in Revelation, that you make sure you have your grace glasses on. <laughs> because if you read these letters as commentators comment on them, you will become very discouraged. <laughs> Most of the commentaries and most of the articles that you find on these letters <clears throat> are really written from a very traditional uh, perspective, very law-based in a sense, and so they f- they tend to form a picture in your mind of Jesus sitting in heaven with a kind of checklist, a report card, yeah. and he's kind of doing a, a check on every church. He says, "Okay, well, this is what you guys have done. Well, this is what you're good at." what you're good at, or this is what you've achieved, but then on the other hand, you have failed miserably here, you haven't done well there, you've neglected this, etc., etc. And that's generally how the commentaries are presented to you. So in the end you kind of think, sure, you know, where are we at (laughs) on this thing? And uh Man, I just think we've, we've got to never forget that the church is the is love of Jesus' life. Sure. Hey. Yes. Man, we've got to grasp how much we are loved. Not just when we do things good or we feel good. Always, you're highly loved. Good. Jesus would never speak to you the way these commentators suggest that he does <laughs> wow. so there's something wrong with that picture and I think that's probably why I never read much further than that because it became so discouraging you know there's even a stage where Jesus says I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth I mean yeah. <laughs> you. May, that may be there but Look for the real meaning. That's also for another day. So what we have here is Jesus communicating with the most precious and deeply loved bride that He gave His life for, that He is forever committed to, through thick and thin. Come what may, Jesus is for you and never against you. And so... His opening words are in Revelation 2 verse 1 Jesus says I know I know your deeds now even just you know when you read I know it's like oh what does he know what does he know I just want to say to you friends he wants us to know that he knows He knows everything about us. He knows everything about you. You don't have to hide anything from him because he knows all about it. Because he's involved in all the detail of your life. You know, when you understand that, you'll find that receiving ministry from Jesus is such a blessing. It's here to build and restore and encourage and change us for the good. Not leave us where we're at. He knows all the challenges. He knows all the hardships. He knows your hard work. He knows your dedication. He knows your involvements. He knows that you've been, even like these guys, were quick to deploy to detect uh, false teaching. They were spiritually sharp, the Ephesians, and I'm not surprised at that at all. When you have people like Paul and John laying foundations into your life, and the same here, We know what, you know what truth is. And so, all in all, the church in Ephesus sounds like a really happening church. It's good to be part of that church up for all the challenges, uh, keeps on going, has pure motives, we read there that, you know, Jesus says, I know all about you, I know your works, I know, gee, you guys are amazing at what you get through, you're accomplishing so much. But then, one, one sort of important fault line seems to have appeared amongst Ephesian believers, and that's in uh, the verse 4 of chapter 2 where Jesus says you have forsaken or you've left your first love oh traditionally now this is where really the going ready good now now we're going to give it to you you've lost your first love now what's wrong with you why have you stopped Loving the way you used to love. What's wrong with that picture? Completely focused on the wrong person. You know, the focus up here is Jesus. Not us. And so, you know, we're just told that we've got to, somehow we've got to rediscover that passion that we had when we first knew Jesus. You know, when you first got saved, hey? That's true, I mean, when you first got saved, man, even the post box could get saved if you spoke to them. You were so keen and eager, and so full of what had happened to you. You know, and then we say, "Oh well, no, you know, I've been a believer for a good number of years, and, oh, you know, so we just coast along. And that's the, that's the kind of picture that is, that is taken by commentators, you know, that you've got to get back to that fervour that you first had. Uh, stir it up man, stir it up and uh, well that can mean such destruction to people's lives so here we told the Ephesians have to up their game, stir up the passion, show your love get more committed get back to your first love but that word first love In the the Greek it's protos agape, first love. That means it's the foremost love. That means it's the love that came first. And what was the love that came first? God's love for you. God's love for you. And the source of God's love is God Himself. God is love. So our first love is not our love for God, but His love for you, for us. What the Spirit is trying to say to us is, don't ever lose. Don't ever lose the magnitude or the intensity and the absolute purity of God's love for you right now. As you see it here, you are loved with a love that goes beyond dimension measuring. It is consistent. It has never changed. It never will change. You can stand on your head and do all sorts of things. Never, ever going to affect God's love for you, Amen. friends. That is a truth that you really have to allow to settle firmly in your heart. Even when you're feeling your worst, even when you feel you've failed miserably, never Amen. forget His love is still the same. for It's an awesome God, what a saviour. You see, God never had a a passionate love for you when you got saved. He got excited because you got saved and now you just become one of millions. Never. You are as unique and special to Him today as the day you first were saved. Always have been. And so, you know, we, we, try to, we try to interpret God's love in terms of our human understanding of our love with each other. Yeah. And sure, you know, when you're, when you're first courting, man, hey, your eyes sparkle and the love, oh, just one on your phone, you're always there, you, you know, write letters, you, I don't know, you do all sorts of crazy things until the honeymoon's over. Now I've said, uh, oh, let's get on with married love. Love and marriage. We just carry on that way. Like, you know, oh, we, we just celebrated 52 years of marriage. Oh, yeah. um, and Wendy, I still get excited when I see you. <laughs> That's our little story. <laughs> But, the honeymoon never ends with God. The honeymoon is the marriage. That's how we're meant to live. That you just live constantly in that place of receiving. Receiving agape. Receiving agape. Receiving agape just flows ceaselessly. It's there to receive. And so that great John apostle John, who lived in Ephesus for a while, wrote this, he said, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the focus is on, not on your love for God, but His love for you. The Ephesians, with beautifully laid foundations in their lives, we're all in that place, I think, in this church. We, we have had such great input. But the danger always rests with us that we can lose sight of what it is who it is that loves us and so the Ephesians were doing all these great things but they allowed their doing to get in the way of their receiving and that's what Jesus writes to them about isn't it amazing that he would take the time and trouble to do that just on one issue isn't it sad that for centuries commentators have twisted these things into quite the opposite? You see, Jesus doesn't tell them to stop working. He doesn't tell them that what was happening is wrong. It's just simply that what they were doing was getting in the way of their receiving. So what Jesus does now is he doesn't leave it there. He now says, well, this is the way back. He points to the way back. It's almost like a little tap on the shoulder. This is, hang on, this is it. And that way back begins with the word remember. Verse 5. Remember. That's the first Imperative verb that you find in that letter. It's the first action word. The first action you need to take is to remember. The first step, the first command is to remember. And what is it that we are to remember? How much we are loved. You see, in verse 5 it says, Remember the height from which we have fallen. Now why was that so significant? And why did the Ephesians understood what Jesus was saying there? Well, if you go back a few years to the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, what did he say in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6? He says, because of his great love, Paul's now writing to the Ephesians, because of his great love for us, God, Has made us alive with Christ, and he has raised us up with Christ and seated us in him at the right hand of the Father, the Majesty in Heaven. So Ephesians, that's where you are rightfully seated. Believers in Stellenbosch, that's where you are rightfully seated. Amen. So remember from great height from which you have fallen. Because I want to lift you back to be in that place. Good. The realization just of the closeness and the warmth and the intimacy of relationship with, with Christ is. You see, God doesn't want us just to be living on empty words. We all know those words. We all know that God's, God is love. But you know, when you read those words, does, does it spark something in your spirit? Mm. Or do they just become words now that are sound nice? God wants us to live in the reality of His love. But remembering is the first step because it's got to be followed by something and that's repentance. That's what Jesus says, repent. Do the things you did at first. This is a good thing to do. Change your thinking. Reconsider. Think differently the way you're thinking now. Don't remain preoccupied and focused on what you're doing. Rethink your priorities. You know, like Jesus had to say to Martha. And that's what Jesus says to the Ephesians. Repent and do. A change of thinking has to be followed. It has to result in a change in behavior. So... You know, God wants us <laughs> He wants us to enjoy Him no. He wants us to enjoy Him the way He enjoys you and so He doesn't want you to get so caught up in other things that you forget to get caught up in the wonder of your salvation sure. and the new life that you now have in Christ and I was uh, reading the other day uh, the story of a one of those real sort of old-time American traveling evangelists. His name was Gypsy Smith. I don't know if you've never heard of Gypsy Smith. That <laughs> he was a he was a very different person, but wherever he went, he just led people by the hundreds to Christ. And uh, he was well known in, a, in, the, in the United States in the, in the late 19th century and um, he actually continued used to use the stomach a guitar and sing gospel songs and preach the word of God and lead people to Christ and he was always the same cheerful individual went around preaching and singing and until he actually died preaching the word of God when he was 87 years old right. and so someone once said to him <clears> they <throat> said what's the secret of the freshness of your ministry your ministry is always so light and easy and it's like a light and easy burden.'" and uh, Gypsy Smith he paused for a bit And then with the twinkling eye, he said, The secret of my ministry is that I've never lost the wonder. Don't ever lose the wonder of what's happened to you. You had nothing to do with it. (laughs) It's all being done for you. And there's nothing selfish about that. God wants you to enjoy it because He enjoys us. Not only does He love us, but He enjoys being with you. And and that's that's what makes the reality of relationship with God so different to those of us who really understand this. We have still, I believe, like Paul writes to the Ephes- like Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we are still to discover and grasp how wide, how deep, how long, how high is the love of Christ for us. There's so much more of the love of God to discover. It surpasses, as we say, all human understanding. And then uh, just a final part of verse 5 that we have to consider in this letter where the words are written. This is also what commentators love. Jesus says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Woelchatz! And now this sounds serious. This is an ominous thing. And of course that's usually seized upon and portrayed as a very dark warning to the church. <laughs> if there's no turning back for this church, your lamp is going to be taken away from you and you'll be done. Well, I mean, do you think that's encouragement to people that are facing challenges? I think it just hastens the demise. But the first thing to note is that this is a very bad translation. There's a bad translation in this sentence and, the, the, and it lies with that Greek word that is translated here as remove is the Greek word kineo and you can look at that in Strong's if you want to. But it actually means move, not remove. Kineo means to move or set in motion or stir up or excite. So Jesus has no plan to remove the Ephesians, but he has a plan to move them if they don't move themselves. That's good. <laughs> nice. now, I tell you, that's encouraging. What do I have to do? Well, you see, repent. Change your thinking. Just get back to enjoying me. But man, if you don't, I'm coming after you. I'm not finished with you. I never will be because I love you so much and I enjoy you. I want to be with you. I mean, that's incredible. That even where we feel Indifferent about responding to that kind of call that Jesus will not stop pursuing. So he wants to take them from this place that they're in and he wants to take them to a better and a new and a better place. He has no thoughts as the bridegroom of leaving his bride. He's never going to leave his bride. If their visions don't return to their first love, their first love will come after them. And I'll tell you, that's really good news for us this morning. If there's one thing we can take away this morning, let it be that. That He's coming after me. I love that song we sang. We have sung before. There's no mountain He won't climb over. No sea He won't swim through. But this is a relentless love. You see, you know, we love if we are loved in return. That's generally the level of human love. I only love those that love me. I love others because I think I'm told I must do that, you know. But really I don't actually fancy them. But here we have have a bride, groom, calling out to his bride. I'm coming after you. I'll pursue you to the very end. It's a relentless love. And so he stands among the lampstands, the churches, his bride, where he's always been, where he's always wanted to be. He's the bridegroom amongst the churches. But that bridegroom is also the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd is the one who goes out searching for those that have gone missing. Yeah. Have you gone missing? Do you feel that you've gone missing? Don't fear. The Good Shepherd is on your trail. Sure. He's coming after you. He's coming to carry you back over His shoulders to a good place. He wants you to be where He is. So how true are those words that we so often read and can recite? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Very interesting that this morning I just happened to be reading in Isaiah And uh, I made a note of this. It's Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16, which you probably know. But I'll read it to you because it's so relevant to this. It says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast
1: and have no compassion on
0: the child that she has born? Question. Though she may forget, there's always a chance Humanly speaking, that we will forget. But God says, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you, or as uh, the Amplified Bible puts it, indelibly imprinted you, or tattooed a picture of you on the palms of my hands. And so, you know, if you your hands, the palms of your hands, are something you see a lot of every day eating or washing your face if you wash right. your face. Uh, but your, your hands are always there. And you know, that's a wonderful picture that your name is there on those hands, engraved. Always sees you. Never forgets you. And never leave you. So, let's take encouragement from these letters. Let's, let's take encouragement from this letter to the Ephesians let's live like God really wants us to. Lightly enjoying Him. Doing things that we never kind of see that other people have an opportunity to get to enjoy with us. The love of God that goes beyond our understanding. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube.